if you could turn to 1 John 3, starting in verse 10. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. If you would read along with me, starting in verse 10, it says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer um, has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But, in, if, but if anyone has the world's good, goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love or let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, as I hear those last few words, Lord, I pray that our church, as we've been going through First John, uh, sees the importance of loving one another, Lord, of loving those within the church, of loving those within our local church, Lord, that we don't love in just word, we don't love in just talk, Lord, but we love in deed and action, God. I pray that's true for us, Lord, and I pray, I pray that as I have been praying as we go through First John, that, that that is so true, that our love is so utter, uh, otherworldly, Lord, that it is a testimony to the culture around us. It's a testimony to Tehachapi, Lord, that, that people, when they, they hear about our church, know us as a church that, that speaks truth, Lord, that preaches the word, but also that loves each other. Lord, I pray that for our church, Lord. Be with us as we go through this challenging challenging passage. In your son's name, amen. Uh, it's been two weeks uh, since we've been in First John. Last week we had a guest speaker, uh, um, but two weeks ago we talked about the new birth. We talked the new birth, and we talked about Jesus's interaction with Nicodemus explaining the new birth to, to Nicodemus, and, and this is found in the Gospel of John chapter 3, where Nicodemus comes at night and, and asks Asking a question of Jesus, he, he wanted to know what he needed to do to enter the kingdom of God. This is a question that was on his heart, and Jesus read his mind. In other words, he, he wanted to know what he needed to do to be saved. And I want to highlight that phrase, what he needed to do. Because Jesus gave him a, a very odd answer. He, he said, just flat out, you must be born again. You must be born again. In fact, this is what it says in, in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. In other words, Nicodemus, there is nothing you can do to be saved. There's no work you can do to be saved. You must be born, like your physical born, but, but spiritually, you must be born again. Then Jesus gives another odd analogy in verse 8. He says this, The wind blows where it wishes. And we talked about this two weeks ago, that that's a play on words that doesn't translate into Greek very well. The Greek word for wind and, and spirit are the same. It's pneuma. Wind and spirit, it's the same, same word. So when Jesus says the wind, that's also the word for spirit. The wind or the spirit, it blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And we said you, you never see the wind, right? On a windy day, you don't see the wind. What do you see? The effects of the wind. You see the effects of the wind. You see leaves moving in the tree as the wind blows the leaves. But you don't see the wind. You see what the, the wind is doing, right? So it is with everyone. This is what Jesus says. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, 
When you share the gospel with someone, when you're engaging with someone and you're sharing the good news with them, what you don't see as you're sharing the gospel with them is the Spirit. You don't see the Spirit. What you see is the changing of a person's heart. You don't, you don't see the Spirit working. What do you see? You see the effects of the changing of a person's heart. You don't see the Spirit changing that person's heart. You see the effects of a changed heart. And the effects of a softened heart, of someone being born again, you see repentance, faith, belief. You see a, a, a deep love for God, a desire for God. You see a deep love and di- desire to follow Christ. But probably the most visible evidence, so at least according to Jesus, one of the most visible evidence of, of a changed heart, of the Spirit working on someone's life, bringing new life to that person, is a love for the brothers. It's a love for fellow Christians. This is what Jesus says in John twelve thirty four: A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, the word, by this, a love for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, the effects of being a disciple of Christ, the effects of a change heart, the evidence, right, the, the wind, right, we don't see it, but the leaves moving, right, is love. Jesus tells us that the mark of a Christian of someone being born again is love, especially love for fellow Christians, especially love for the brothers, John, or Jesus says. Look with me at 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. It says this in verse 10. By this, it is evident, right? Again, that's effects, right? The evidence, what we see. By this, it is evident who are, who are the children of God, right? Someone that's born again is born into the family of God, right? Who are, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one that does not love his brother. Two weeks ago, we said that that's, that's a transitional statement. John's leaving the moral test, and he's going to the social test. Do you love one another, right? That's a test. That's, a, that's the evidence, right? That's the effects, of someone being born again, but it's more than just a transitional statement. It's a defining mark of a Christian. This is what Glenn uh, Baker wrote about verse 10. John is not stressing absolute moral conformity or, or sinless perfection. That's not what he's saying. But the one requirement by which all other requirements are measured, love one's brother, love for one's brother, for this, there is no substitution. Its violation allows no excuse. Its application permits no compromise. Here, there are no gray areas, no third possibilities. Either one loves his brother and proves he is a child of God, or one does not love his brother and proves he belongs to the devil. Those that love are children of God, and those that do not love, in other words, are children of of the devil. I want you to see what John does next after this passage. He takes the two most extreme examples I think he can think of, right, of love and hate, and he compares them to each other. The two most extreme examples. Look at verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. What is the message that they heard from the beginning? And John's used this phraseology before. What, what did they hear in the beginning of their relationship with the Lord? What was the message? The gospel, right? What is the gospel? It's the love of Christ. What Christ has done for us, the good news that he died for us on the cross. Well, look at verse 12. We should not be like Cain. Who is Cain? The son of Adam and Eve, right? Cain, this is found in Genesis 4. Cain is the one that murdered his brother Abel. John is going to compare and contrast the hatred of Cain with the love of Christ. The hatred of Cain with the love of Christ. And these are extreme opposites. Think about this. One man, Cain, took his brother's life out of hatred and jealousy, right? Out of selfish ambition. 
One man, Jesus, laid down his life for his brother out of love. So here's our three points this morning. Cain-like hatred is the first point. The second point is Jesus-like love. And the third point is there's no third option. Cain-like hatred, Jesus-like love, and no third option. Let's listen to Cain-like hatred. Verse, verse, verse 12, it says this. We should not be like Cain, who was, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Murder is the ultimate act of hate. Hate is at the heart of murder. And two weeks ago, I, I said, said uh, uh, sometimes we just look at the action of a sin and not the heart behind the sin. If you were looked at purely at the action of sin, what, what the sin did, murder seems worse than hating someone in your heart. If you just hated someone in your heart versus going up and murdering someone, it seems like those aren't at the same level when it comes to sin. You know why that is? Because it is worse. Horizontally, earthly consequences. Murder has much further, farther-reaching consequences than just hating someone within your heart. And we need to make that clear. I think people are confused by this with us Christians. Like, there's a difference between someone gossiping about someone at church and the guy that walked into the, to the mosque and shot 49 people and killed them. And those are two different levels. Because they have, murder has heavier consequences But I want to be clear on this, too. The heart behind both is the same. The heart behind both these actions, gossiping and murdering, is the same. It's hatred. God is going to judge mankind not just by actions. He will judge man by his heart also. Right? And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 5:21, "You have heard it that it was or heard that it was said that the, uh, to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, in other words, hates his brother, will be liable to judgment." John's point and, and Jesus too is the heart behind murdering, murdering a brother is the same thing. It's hatred. Right? That's the heart. It's just acted out. Look what he says in verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. The word in Greek, actually, for murder is very vivid. It doesn't come across in English. It it literally means butchered or slaughtered. It actually literally means to cut the throat. It it was used a lot uh, to explain what, what happened to animal sacrifices. It implies an extremely violent death. Cain didn't just murder Abel. In other words, he violently murdered Abel. And we should not be like Cain, verse 12, who was of the evil one. Cain was doing the works of the evil one, in other words. He, he, he was in the kingdom of the evil one. He, w- he was a son of the evil one. He was a seed from the evil one. If you look at Genesis 4, and I wanted to do this this morning, but we don't have time, so I encourage you this afternoon, just read Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel. And and there's this connection from the seed of Satan talked about in Genesis 3, Genesis 3.15, that that your seed would be at enmity with the, the woman and the woman's seed. There's this connection between that seed and Cain and Cain's children. You get a lineage of Cain in, in chapter 4. And Cain and his children... Are become the seeds of Satan, right? They're a child of the devil. And Jesus says in the Gospel of, of John eight forty four, this is what he says: You are of your, your father, the devil, and you will do, uh, or and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he was pointing back to Cain. He's pointing back to Cain, that Cain was acting out his father's desires. Look at verse 12 again. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that, you're, uh, that the world hates you. Listen, righteousness draws hatred from the devil and his children. Righteousness draws hatred 
from the devil and his children. It's because, because darkness cannot tolerate light. Immorality opposes morality. Selfish greed and selfish sacrifice are opposites. Therefore, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Right? Cain hated Abel. He hated Abel because Abel was righteous and he wasn't. And instead of, of repenting and turning from his sin and turning to God, he hated the man that reminded him of his unrighteousness. There's something interesting I want to point out here. John normally addresses the church as, what's his normal address to the church in First John? Little children, right? You've heard that phrase over and over again, little children, little children, little children. That's probably because John at this point was actually really old. He was, he was a, a, a pastor at this church for a long time, and he looked to the church as his children. Right? So he calls them little children. But in this passage, right, in this verse, look what he says. Do not be surprised, brothers. Right? He calls them brothers. And I think it's because there's this idea of brotherhood that runs through this passage. Right? There's this idea of brotherhood that runs through this passage. Cain and Abel were brothers. They were brothers. They're probably actually twins. That's what most theologians and commentaries uh, uh, people think. That they probably were twins, but they were brothers for sure. Physical brothers. But Cain didn't treat Abel as a brother. Proving he was a physical, physical brother... But he wasn't a spiritual brother. Cain and Abel had different spiritual fathers. They had the same physical father, right, Adam. But they had two different spiritual fathers. John is saying even though that, um, that we are not physical brothers and sisters, we all have been born again into the, to a spiritual family. That we are brothers and sisters in the family of God. We are a family, in other words. We should be loving each other like brothers love e- and sisters love each other. On top of that, look at verse 13. It says this, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. In other words, the world's going to hate you. <laughs> the world's going to hate us. And the Bible's clear on this. We're not of this world, and the world's going to be confused by us, and it's going to hate us, just like Cain hated Abel. And that's because this is not our home, Right? Therefore, all we have is each other. Think about that. So let's love each other. Listen to what John says in verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. I want to be clear on this. Brothers is not humanity. Brothers is talking about the church. It's talking about those that are truly saved. He's talking about us, right? Those that are saved in this room. And look what he says. He's talking about the new birth here. Then we know that we have passed out of death into life. Right? He's talking about new birth. He's talking about being born again, being born into the family of God, right? The effects, right? The leaves moving. The effects of the Spirit changing our heart. We know we have passed out of death into life. The verb passed is actually in the perfect tense. We've talked about this before. It's used a lot, this perfect tense, when it talks about our salvation because, because it's something that happened in the past that affects the present. That's what the perfect tense does. It's something that happened in the past that affects the present. And, and our new birth happened in the past when we were saved, but it affects us to this day. God brought new life to you, and the effects are happening to this day. And what are those effects? Well, look at verse 14. We know that we we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Because we love the brothers. The verb love is in the is in the present tense. We talked about this before. It, it's, it's an ongoing action. It's a continuous action. We practice love. We love each other. Right? The effects of the new, the, the new birth is, is love. We don't see the wind blowing. We don't see the Spirit changing our heart, but we see the effects. And what are the effects? What are the leaves moving when it comes to the new birth? Love for the brothers. Look what it says in verse 14, second part. Whoever does not love abides in death. 
Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If you do not love, in other words, that's a sign that you have no spiritual life. And if you have no spiritual life, you have no eternal life. That's Cain-like hatred, Cain-like hate. Now, John's going to contrast that to Christ-like love, right? The other extreme. Look at verse 16. This is our second point. Christ-like love, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Do you see the contrast? Let me think about it. Cain, Cain's hatred was one extreme, right? He put himself before his brother to the point that he violently killed his brother. Christ's love is the opposite extreme. He put his brother before himself. And verse 16 says, he laid down his life for us. Jesus is our great example of love. Right? Look what it says in verse 16. By this, right, Christ's death, that's what it's pointing to. By this, we know love. It's interesting, if you go through the New Testament and you look at at all the commands where it tells us to love, just about every command, it it tells us to love, and then it says, like Christ, or it shows an example of Christ. Like, Christ is our example. Christ is how we know how to love. And I was thinking about that. How did Christ love? So I got three three ways, three things Christ did to love. His, His love, three ways Christ loved. The first way is this. It accomplished something. It acted. It was atoning. It wasn't just in word or talk. It was in deed, in other words. Jesus acted. He didn't just say, I love you. He showed his love in action. This is uh, Isaiah 53, 4, which we're familiar with, but this is the clearest picture of of what the death of Christ accomplished. It said this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him, him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, but, but he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that, chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we were healed. We are healed. Jesus' love saved us. He gave his life so that we could have life. Right? Jesus' love, in other words, was not in word only but it was in deed and in truth. That's what it says in, in 1 John 3, 18. It says, little children, let us, let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. And Jesus is our example. He acted, in other words. So that's the first, first thing we learn from Jesus' example of love. He acted. The second thing is this. Jesus' love was self, uh, self-sacrificial. It was self-sacrificial. It's consistent. You see this in the New Testament over and over and over again, that Jesus sacrificed self for others. But this is what it says in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' love was self-sacrificial. Listen, we, we as a church, we as Country Oaks Baptist Church, are called to lay down our, our self-interest, our lives, for the good of others within the church. That's the example that Jesus set. To serve each other, to put others first, put others' preferences first, not our own. The third way, we, the third thing we learn from Jesus' love, and this is probably the hardest one, at least from what I hear, this is probably the hardest one. Jesus loved those who hated him. Jesus loved those who hated him. Right? Jesus loved his enemies. We've heard that many times. In Romans 5, 6 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, those that, that hated him. <laughs> those that were sinners, Jesus died for. I mean, think about Jesus' love for the apostles. Let's just go there. Jesus' love for the apostles. We just got out of uh, the gospel of um, Luke and, and, and the narrative of Luke. They only started following Jesus to, to, 
to begin with because they thought Jesus would make them rich. Right? They thought he was going to be the next Messiah, earthly king. Right? They were going to be the most popular, the most powerful, and wealthy. They followed Jesus for three years, and Jesus endured. You know the part of the love chapter says love endures all things? For three years, Jesus endured hard-heartedness with these disciples. Three years. Imagine, imagine that if we, we, we endured that much with each other. Hard-heartedness, ignorance, prideful sin. Just to have them all abandon him, right? In the hardest moment of his life, they all took off. One of them betraying him with a kiss, right? Leading an angry mob to him to have him killed. I mean, that's Judas, of course. And think about Jesus' interaction with Judas. I mean, if you go through it, he's so gentle with Judas. Think about Peter. In this hardest moment, right? Cursing Jesus' name as Jesus was about to die for him. All betraying him. All abandoning him. All hurting him. You want to talk about church hurt? All hurting him. Yet Jesus loved them. I don't know how many times we were like, I've been hurt, so I'm out of here. But that's not Jesus' love. He invested into their lives. He served them. He washed their feet. Listen, ultimately, he sacrificed everything even his life for them. Listen, there is no excuse not to love people at the church. Right? And I hear people say stuff all the time. It, it, people are too stuck up. They're too mean. It's clicky. Right? People gossip. They're uncool. They're weird. They're too old. They're too young. Listen, there is no excuse not to love like Jesus. He loved the apostles in action, not just words. He didn't just say, hey, I love you guys, and take off. In action. Can you imagine if he just took off? First time, you know, they got, he got hurt by one of them. I'm hurt. I'm out of here. Jesus loved those that hated him. Listen, that includes you. It includes you. Jesus didn't, didn't, didn't love us because we were lovable. He didn't love me, Nathan, because I was lovable. He didn't look down and go, you know what? That's a guy I'm going to love because look at him. So we did nothing to cause him to love us before God changed our heart, before, before he took us enemies, right, and made him part of his family. We didn't worship him. We were just like Peter. We cursed his name in our action and in our hearts. And he loved us anyways. He loved us despite our hate for him. You want to love like Jesus? Listen, love people despite what, what you get from them. Love people even if they're hard to love. Love people even if they sin against you, even if they hurt you. Love them. That's Christ-like love. I mean, that, only, that only happens in close community, by the way. You can only love that way if you're, you're closely knitted to a group of people. Closely knitted to the, the believers. That's why we're pushing small groups. And that's why we want to see everyone get in small groups and get involved in the church and get to that place where, where you can get hurt by someone so you can love them like Christ. By this we know love in Jesus, that he laid down his life for us and, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Listen, let's love each other. Let's love each other like this. And I know what you're thinking because I, I, I hear this. First John does this to me all the time. I'm like, how can we love like that? <laughs> right, that's impossible. That's an impossible standard. Right, how can we love like Jesus? Listen, there's grace. Right, we know that there's grace. We're going to fail, and that's okay because Christ died for us. Right, he, he, he's in heaven right now being our intermediate. Like he, he's, he's, he's our defense attorney. We talked about this. John talked about this. But John does something very, very unexpected, almost surprising in verse 17. He takes this extreme example of Christ's death and gives us a really practical application. Look at verse, verse 17. It's simple. Verse 17. 
But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love in, in, in not in or let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's simple. I mean, don't get me wrong; it's hard, but the concept is simple. If you see your brother in need, act, give. There's two things I want to point out here that, that John says. Right, two things. The first thing is this. John says, if you see your brother, right, sees him in need, right, you need to see your brother, in other words. You need to see your brother. That means you have to be involved in other people's life within the church to be able to see them. It says, verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need. It's interesting, that word brother is singular. In this passage, it's, it's, it's used plurally, right? Like the brothers, the brethren. If you have the NASB, it says the brethren. But John gets here and says, if you see, sees his brother, singular, in need. John switches. Why? Why? Well, here's what I think. And again, this is the inspired word of God. So, so going from plural to singular is that important, right? God wants us to see this for some reason. Here's what I think. We, we, we need to have a personal relationship with those within the church. We need to have a personal relationship with, with, with a brother in the church. John is making this very personal. It's easy to say, well, I love the church. I love Country Oaks Baptist Church. But are you loving individuals in the church? That's the question that John, John is asking. One author put it this way. Saying we, love, saying we love everybody in general may be become an excuse for loving nobody in particular. And John makes it clear, like, we can say we love and not be loving, right? Don't love in, in talk and word, but in action. I think it's one of the reasons people don't get involved. I really believe this is one of the biggest reasons people don't get involved, why they don't get involved in a small group. They don't come to Sunday, Sunday school. Where they don't get involved in ministry with other people, rubbing shoulders with other people. Right? Where they really don't get involved in church. And they may come Sundays and that's it. And, and don't have any relationships that, that, that are involved. Because I, they don't want to see other people's needs. That's, that's one of the reasons I think people don't get involved in the church. They don't want to see other people's needs. Because people's lives are messy. They are, Right? My life's messy. <laughs> right? Our lives are messy. And if you get involved in people's life, it's going to be messy. But I'll tell you what, it's a blessing. It's a blessing to love people like Christ love. I can't explain it. It just is. I don't miss out on that blessing. I see people's life. You need, to, you need to get to a place where you see brothers' needs, and then you need to be willing to act. Look at verse 18 Little, little children, let us not love in, in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. C.H. Uh, Dodd wrote this, Love is the willingness to surrender that which has value for our own life to enrich the life of others. That, that's valuable to us, to be willing to surrender what's valuable to us to enrich someone else's life. That might just be time. Like, I value time. I'm going to sacrifice that to, to, to enrich a brother's life. It may be money. It may be some good. It may just be effort. One commentator wrote this, because this, this is so, in one sense, this is difficult, but in one sense, this is so simple. Listen to, to one commentator say, he said this, John's shift from Christ's glorious cross to, to a, uh, a church soup kitchen is surprising. But what a wonderful surprise. The call to love is within everyone's reach. It is not a call for martyrdom. Right? Uh, he, he is not asking for Zacchaeus-like generosity. We are not called to give half of, half of our possessions to the poor, but simply to provide when the opportunity arises. When we see a brother in need, out of our abundance, give and act. That's what John's calling us to do. So that's Cain-like hatred versus Christ-like love. And here's the third point. There is no third option. 
And listen, out of all the sermons I've preached through First John, this is the hardest point. This is the hardest point. This is what John Stott, who writes an excellent commentary on First John, this is what he says about this passage. Hatred characterizes the world whose prototype is Cain. It originates in the devil, issues in murder, and is evident of spiritual death. But on the other hand, love characterizes the church, whose prototype is Christ. It originates in God, issues in self-sacrifice, and is evident of spiritual life. In other words, Cain represents the world, hate and murder, a child of the devil, dead, spiritually dead in the darkness. But the church represents Christ, love and self-sacrifice. It's a child of God, right? We're children of God. We are alive, born again in the light. And as I went back and forth in this passage, it like hit me as I'm looking at this contrast. John doesn't give us a third option. He doesn't give us a third option which is hard. I mean, I mean John does this throughout his, his epistle, right? It's either you're, you're in light or you're in darkness. Either you're spiritually alive or you're spiritually dead. Either you're of this world or you're not of this world. Either you're a ch- child of God or you're a child of the devil. He goes back and forth throughout this epistle. And there's no difference in this passage. Either you love like Christ or you hate like Cain. No third option. Turn to me, with me to 1 John chapter 2, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. It says this. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Right? Light and darkness. Love, hate. Two options. Now go back to chapter 3, verse 10. By this it is evident, verse 10, by this is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does, does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Right? Children of God, children of the devil. Love, hate. I know what you're thinking because I, I, like, I struggled with this. There has to be a third option, right? Because I know, I know, like, I don't meet the standard of Christ, but I know there's people that, like, come to church and, and maybe mark off, like, hey, I've gone Sunday, but I don't want to get more involved in that. And you're thinking, I don't love like Jesus. I get that. But I'm not a murderer. I don't hate like Cain. Isn't there a third option here? Right? Isn't there somewhere in between? Where I don't love sacrificially, but I don't, I don't hate like Cain. There's not a third option. Look at verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Look at the end of verse 14. I want you guys to see this. Whoever does not love abides in death. Now look at the beginning of verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. This is, this is a, a Hebraic form of writing. It's synonymous, synonymous parallelism. We see this throughout Scripture. This is how Hebrews wrote, especially in poetry. It's saying the same exact thing in different words. And there is, a, there is an important implication here. Listen to what it says. Whoever does not love everyone who hates. Those are the same thing. John is saying not loving is equal to hatred. Not loving is equal to hatred. And I, I, I'm telling you right now, as I wrestled with this passage throughout this week, out of all the black and whites of John, out of all the either ors of John, this is the hardest one. This is the hardest one. How is not loving someone equal to hating them? Well, it really got me thinking because I'm like, it's just in my mind that does not make sense. So I examined this a little bit further and I really examined the word hate in scripture. What does hate mean scripturally? And what does John, because that's where I'm getting at, what does John mean by the word hate? When it, it, everyone who hates his brother, what does hate mean in that verse? 
This is what I discovered. The word hate has a way stronger connotation in our culture than the biblical culture. I mean, just, just think about this. When I think of the word hate, what images just come to your mind when you think of the word hate? Like, automatically, stuff like the KKK, Nazi Germany, white supremacy, ISIS, right, 9-11, school shootings, these are the things that just kind of go through my head when I think of hate. And because of this, I don't consider myself a hateful person. In our culture, hate means like actively acting out, in, in a dis- actively despising someone. Right, just wanting them dead. It's partly, partly because of our history as a nation and culture, right? Slavery, racism, World War II. But biblically, in the biblical culture, to not love someone is to hate them. To not love someone is to hate them. It doesn't mean you are actively despising them. In the biblical culture, listen, indifference is equal to hatred. Indifference is equal to hatred. Let me show you. I don't want to just say this. Let me try to prove this to you. Turn to Genesis 29, verse 30. Genesis chapter 29, verse 30. I have two examples. I might just go over one. We're running out of time. But there is many examples of this. There's more than two. Genesis 29, verse 30. Verse 30 says this. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. He loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. And we know this story, right? And if you don't know this story, Jacob is this man... That, uh, that marries these two women, and he has this love for one of them, Rachel. And he's indifferent to the other. He doesn't love the other as he loves Rachel. It says he loved Rachel more than Leah. It wasn't that he despised Leah. It wasn't that he like, wanted her dead or actively tried to murder her or something like that. He actually took care of Leah. He had children with her. He just was indifferent to her, especially in comparison to his love of Rachel. Well, look what it says in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated. When the Lord saw Leah was hated. Listen, in the biblical culture, the word hate can mean not to love or to not love. It can mean to be indifferent. I mean, this is so hard for us. It's hard for me as a culture. Like, I hear that word hate. There's so much baggage that comes with that word in our culture. Is that not true? Like, you hear that word. There's just all this baggage that comes with us. It actually, it's so hard for our culture to grasp this that the NASB, if you have the NASB this morning, the word isn't translated hate. It's translated differently. The NASB uh, translates it this way. It says, now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. You know why they did that? it's not because that that word isn't hate. It's clear that that word means hate. It's used, the, the word in Hebrew is used 146 times in the Old Testament, and overwhelmingly it's translated hate. The NASB translator, under, translators understood that the word hate has, has such a strong connotation to us, right? has so much baggage in our culture, that they translated the word unloved to get the meaning across better. If they were trying to get the meaning across, if you have the NASB this morning, there's probably a footnote, like a little one, two, or three. And if you look at that footnote, it will say, it means hate. (laughs) The point is, biblically, the lack of love is equal to hatred. Right, we'll look at the other example. Look at, turn to Luke 14, 26. Luke 14, 26. I don't have a second service that I can't go over. That's why so many people go to first service, because they know I'm going to get out right on time. We didn't go over this example in first service just then. Luke 14, 26, it says this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate 
his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters. Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's a troubling verse, right? Especially for us that translate hate actively despising and wanting dead, murdering. The Greek word is uh, uh, miso. It's used 41 times and is translated hate, hatred, and hateful. <laughs> That's the good translation. But it's, but it's not troubling. If you understand in the biblical culture, hatred equals indifference sometimes. Hatred can equal indifference. In other words, our love for Jesus should so surpass our love for anything else. As if you compare the two, it's like we're indifferent toward the other things when you compare our love for Jesus. And it's like the love Jacob had for Rachel versus Leah. He is indifferent towards her because he loved Rachel so much. Jesus is not telling us to actively despise our family. So when you get to 1 John chapter 2, verse 9, and it says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness, what John is saying is that those that don't show love towards their brother, right? those that are indifferent towards their brothers, are, are actively hating their brothers. Listen, this is what John is saying in our passage. Turn back again now to 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. I want you to see, John is saying indifference is equal to hatred in this passage. Walk through, through this, this whole passage with me, and I want, you, I want to see if you guys can see it that way. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10 says this, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil, right? There's only two options, the children of God and the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Indifference. Skip to verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Right? They will know us by our love. Whoever does not love or whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart, how does God's love abide in him? In other words, if you're indifferent towards your brother, you have no love towards your brother, you're actually hating your brother. That's what he's saying. This is what one commentator said about this passage. How does John understand hate? Does he think it in, in conceptual terms or concrete ones? Undoubtedly, the answer lies, uh, or doubtedly, the answer for him lies primarily in what one does. Hate is the absence of the deeds of love. To walk in the light is to love one's brother. And God's love will express itself in concrete actions. If these are missing, it is not love. Because love can't be neutral. It can't be unexpressed. Love unexpressed is not love at all. Love has no neutral capabilities. When, when, when it is absent, when love is absent, hate is present. There's no middle ground for John. In this instance, then, hate is the failure to deny oneself, the unwillingness to lay down one's life for a brother. It, consi it considers its own plight first and disregards the, the afflicted, despises the little ones, withholds the cup of cold water from the thirsty, and makes no effort to welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, or help the sick. Whenever a brother has need and, no, er, and one does not help him, then one has despised and, in fact, hated his brother. To John, indifference is hatred, and, and that's so hard. That's so hard. This has been a convicting week for me as I've been going through this passage. Meaning, you love like Christ, and you're in the light, or you hate like Cain, and are in the dark, and there's no third option. Just because you say 
you're not a hateful person doesn't mean you're not. Are you indifferent? And the opposite of that works too. Just because you say you're a loving person, you claim that you love those in the church, doesn't mean you are. That's challenging. Challenging. So I want to end with a challenge to all of us. And the challenge is verse 18. Listen to what it says. Little children, that's the church, right? Little children, this is, for, this is John to us. This is John inspired by God. This means this is God's word to us. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father God, I know how challenging of a sermon, how challenging of a portion of scripture this is from First John. And I know John is challenging the church, Lord. The church that he's writing to and he's inspired by you. So this is our challenge, Lord. I'm reminded of your grace and I thank, thank you so much that John starts his epistle with grace. That we're going to mess up. That we're not going to love perfect. There's going to be times we're indifferent, Lord. But are we practicing love? Are we, are we seeking love? Are we seeking each other and, and, and finding places where we get, get to know each other and know where there's needs so that we can fill those needs and also make known our needs so our needs could be filled? God, that's the challenge. It's not perfection. There's grace, and I'm thankful for your grace that you died on the cross where we sin, where we mess up, Lord. It's paid for. It's forgiving. You are interceding for us right now every time we sin, Lord. Our hearts will never be perfect until we are in glory. I am thankful for your grace. At the same time, Lord, the challenge is to grow in our love for each other. Let us be a church, Lord. I've been praying through all of this epistle. Let us be a church that loves each other, not in words, not, not in talk, but in deeds, in action, and in truth. Let us be bold with our love. And I pray, Lord, that the community sees it, Lord. Right? They will know us by our love, Lord. I pray Tehachapi knows Country Oaks more than anything else by their love, their passion for your word and their, and their love. Help that be our testimony as a church, Lord. So people look at us and go, where did that love come from? It's utterworldly, and we can say it comes from Christ. He's our example. Let that be true, Lord. In your son's name, amen.